Open your Bibles this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 30. 1 Samuel chapter 30. If you're using that Pew Bible this morning, you'll want to open up to page 315. 315 will land you in 1 Samuel chapter 30. Well, I was on vacation a few weeks ago up in uh, Idaho. Had opportunity to visit a World War II museum. And uh, there in that museum, there was all kinds of memorabilia with regard to World War II in the 1940s, in particular, that period of time when our nation was embroiled in a world conflict, fighting a war on two fronts. It was amazing to walk through that museum, so much to see, so much to read. Uh, There were many uh, personal letters and things from soldiers and uh, those home, you know, on the home front back out to those that were uh, serving in the military. Many, uh, many things that would bring tears to your eyes, letters from commanding officers to young widows uh, reporting to them the loss of their husband in combat and things like that. So it was really very touching uh, to go there and to visit. It made it very real. One of the things that uh, stood out to me in that museum was a collection of posters that they had on the walls around the museum, posters that were um, devoted to uh, encouraging people here in the States to get engaged in the war effort. Those posters uh, were really, some of them quite elaborately done, and I realize they are propaganda posters. Uh, And they were designed uh, for a specific purpose to communicate to the people that uh, this was not just something going on over there, but it was something that affected their lives here and now and that they could have a real and significant role to play. One of the posters, for example, had the picture of a soldier just from the neck up, so face and helmet and so forth on there. And the caption on the poster read as follows, it said, do with less so they'll have more. Rationing gives you your fair share. Those of you who lived through that period of time, remember, I'm sure, the rationing that was required in order to support the war effort. Things like gasoline was rationed and and as were many other commodities. And so uh, this was a call for the people in the states here in the U.S. to give up things in order that those fighting overseas would have all that they needed. There was another picture with an older gentleman wearing a a red, white, and blue striped hat, and he had a beard and so forth, and a a suit coat on. You know who I'm talking about, Uncle Sam. And uh, that poster said, I want you, and it had a finger pointing straight out, for the U.S. Army. Enlist now. A recruiting poster. There's another poster there that had the picture of a man and he was working a blast furnace. He was he had his uh, down to his, uh, you know, kind of BVDs and he was shoveling coal into the into the blast furnace. And the uh, caption on that poster said, keep moving. Don't waste a precious minute. That was communicating to those working in the factories here in America that they needed to, to work diligently and there was no time for freeloaders. The war effort required commitment. Last poster I want to tell you about had a picture of a beautiful woman. She was, she was drop-dead gorgeous. And the caption on that picture was, Longing won't bring him back sooner. Get a war job. Kind of interesting, wasn't it? So just laying home and pining away is not going to bring him home any sooner. Get into the action was what it was communicating. The generation that fought that war has been called the greatest generation. And I think appropriately so. The amount of sacrifice that was required at that time and in those days was something that, for the majority of us, we don't understand. And, to be honest, I think most of us would be very reticent to make. It was a unique generation 
at a unique time in history in this country. They were a generation that understood the meaning of the word sacrifice. They were a generation that understood the meaning of a total team effort. They were a generation that understood that they were involved in a long war, a hard war, a war in which there could be no capitulation, no giving in, no negotiated truces or surrenders. It was a war that had to be won. And they made the sacrifices necessary by the grace of God to do it. That generation's dying. They're being buried at a rapid rate these days. Passing from the scene and they've handed it off to us. But you know, we're also involved in a war. We're involved in a different kind of war. As followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are engaged in a spiritual war. In which the battlefields are just not a European theater and a Pacific theater. But they are everywhere about us. Our enemy is not flesh and blood. Because it's a spiritual war. And the stakes are even higher. They are eternal. It is a war for the souls of mankind. I praise God that the Scripture reveals who is going to win, right? Indeed, who has won. Christ has won the victory. But the mopping up action goes on. We are called to bring the Gospel to a world that desperately needs it. To engage in a spiritual warfare. We can learn from the greatest generation. They understood in the war of their day that everyone had to be involved. It couldn't just be a few doing the fighting while everybody else stays back and goes on with their normal lives and business. Leaving it to the professionals to fight on their behalf. Everyone needed to be engaged. And in a far greater way, beloved, all of us are called to be engaged in this great spiritual struggle. Everyone needs to play their part. The text before us this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 30 has three Simple but significant lessons. Simple but significant lessons from David's victory over the Amalekites. A reason I take us to this text this morning is because from this text I want to encourage all of us, all of you, to participate in the great war in which we are engaged. I think we can do it by taking a look at this obscure passage in an old part of the Old Testament where for some perhaps the pages still stick together and the dust resides. Let's blow it off together this morning and I think you'll see it comes alive. Let me take you through the narrative. We'll draw our lessons afterwards, but let's just walk through the narrative together. We've got to put our sandals on and go back 3,000 years to a different time and place. Verse 1. Then it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and on Ziklag and had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire. And they took captive, 
captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone, and carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Stop right there. We're kind of launched right into the middle of something here. So let me provide you some background to bring you up to speed. David, the great king of Israel, has already been anointed by the prophet Samuel as the rightful heir, yet he does not have the throne yet at this time. He is still on the run. Saul is seeking his life, and in fact, David was on the run for nearly ten years, hiding and dodging and moving from place to place, one step ahead of the hangman, as it were, that Saul might not execute him and prevent or seek to prevent the Lord's prophecy from coming true. These were difficult and dismal years for David. He experienced incredible spiritual lows during these years on the run. But God was faithful. Here in this text and just prior to it in verse 29, we find one of those great periods of lows in the, day, in the life of David. In, verse, in chapter 29, what we find is that somehow David, the anointed king of Israel, has hired on with the Philistines to fight against Israel. It's really unbelievable. David and uh, his band of followers are providing mercenary services to the Philistines. Achish, the king of Gath. David has been attached to him almost as his personal bodyguard, entering into the battle as the five lords of the Philistines have gathered together to go into battle against Saul and the people of Israel. And David finds himself not fighting for his people and his nation, but somehow riding side by side with the nation's enemies. It's amazing. David is on the horns of an incredible dilemma. That is that he has been living a double life. He's been living down in what is called the Negev. That is the southern portion of, uh, of uh, the land of Canaan, modern Israel, south of the Dead Sea, down in the area where it's flyover zone. It is, it is nothing but dirt and rock and hot and dry. There are caves and places like that where a fugitive could hide. But it's definitely not a place where you want to call home, at least not on a long-term basis. David and his band of men are living down in that area, and they're living, as I said, a double life. That is, they've been given the city of Ziklag to live in, a small village. And uh, Achish uh, is, believes that David has uh, so alienated himself from the people of Israel because of the raids that David has been conducting down in that area where he has been seizing property and, and, uh, and wiping out uh, uh, what Achish thinks are uh, tribal settlements of Israel when in reality David has been killing the enemies of Israel. It's a really bizarre situation. David is, is killing the enemies of Israel and he's killing every single one of them so none are left alive to tell that what he's really doing is to benefit Israel not to hurt her. But Achish thinks David's on his side. So he calls him up to come alongside him and enter into battle against Saul. David's on this horns of a dilemma. He doesn't know what to do. Does he go into battle against Israel? Can't do that. Yet at the same time, he can't really reveal that he's been living a double life all along, that he's been like a fifth column inside of, of the Philistine armies. Fortunately, the Lord intervenes through the other lords of the Philistine and they say, we don't want this guy riding along with us because in the, in the midst of the battle, he may decide he wants to help Saul after all and then we have an enemy in our midst and so they send David back. That's where verse 1, chapter 30 enters in. Actually, verse 11, 29. So David arose early after being sent back. He and his men to depart in the morning and return to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. And of course, at the battle there, Saul was killed. Aphek to Ziklag, which is um, where David and his men are returning from, is about 50 miles away. So it's a 50-mile trip back to the home village. And it says in verse 1, it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day. That is the third day after being dismissed from the armies of, of Achish, the Philistine armies. 
while David was gone, the Amalekites, verse 1, it says, made a raid on the Negev and on the village of Ziklag. And conquering the village, they burned it with fire. Now, we need to know about the Amalekites. The Amalekites are the descendants of Amalek, son of Esau. They were the ones that attacked the nation of Israel in the Exodus when they came out of Egypt and were were wandering to enter into the promised land. It was the Amalekites that descended upon the rear columns of Israel and a great battle occurred in which you'll remember Moses sat on a stone and he had a guy on each side, right? Aaron and her, and they held his arms up. And as long as his arms were high, Israel prevailed. And when his arms sagged, right, Amalek prevailed. And so in that great battle with Aaron and her holding up Moses' arms, the nation overcame the Amalekites. And God swore there. This, by the way, all happens back in Exodus, I believe it's 17. God swore at that time that the Amalekites were the enemies of Israel forever. So that's who these people are, these nomadic tribal people called the Amalekites. While David and his men are away, they raid the Negev and Ziklag in particular. They burn it and they capture all of the women and children and take all of the belongings, all the spoil of battle. Verse 4. Then David and the people who were with him lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength in them to weep. Now David's two wives had been taken, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelites. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. For all the people were embittered, each one because because of his sons and his daughters. They came back from heading off to battle, and they find that their houses have been burned. Their children taken. Their wives taken. All of their belongings. All of their cattle. Everything they had in the world taken away. It says they wept until they couldn't weep any longer, until there were no more tears to come. And then David's troops began to murmur about stoning him. They're going to execute him. Why? Well, we can only suppose, but I suppose it has something to do with the fact that, David, you're the ones who got us into this mess. You're the ones you're the one who said we ought to go off with Achish and the Philistines and fight against Israel and leave our homes unprotected, our villages unsecured. We follow your harebrained idea and now we come back and everything we got in the world has been swept away from us. Verse 6, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. That is, David went to his God in prayer, believing God would provide the answer. Verse 7, and David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? And he, that is God, said to him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and you shall surely rescue all. Another interesting piece of ancient culture for us here. David calls for the ephod. The ephod was a linen garment to be worn by the high priest. Either shoulder of the garment, there were gold clasps, and on the clasps, there were two onyx stones, and on each stone, there was ascribed the the names of the tribes of Israel, six on one shoulder and six on the other, so that the high priest carried with him, wherever he went, the nation, as it were, on his shoulders. On the front of the ephod, there was a a, uh, gold, square gold uh, plate on which were twelve precious stones, And each stone had a different name of the 12 tribes of Israel inscribed on them so that the high priest would carry on his heart the tribes of Israel wherever he went when he went before the Lord. Now, behind this breastplate of judgment, a breastpiece of judgment, there was a linen pocket. In the linen pocket were two mysterious and tantalizing objects. Mysterious and tantalizing for us, because we don't know exactly what they were. The Urim and the Thummim. 
And these were somehow used to discern the will of God. Some think they were perhaps two colored stones, a white and a black stone. Others think they were other objects. We don't know what they were, but all we know is that in those days at that time, they were given by God to the nation of Israel, Exodus 28, and they were the means by which the high priest would discern the will of God. So David calls Abiathar the priest before him with the ephod and with the breastpiece and with the pouch with the Urim and the Thummim in it. And David dialogues with God through the high priest and he says to him essentially, verse 8, What do I do? Do I go after these guys who have burned our homes and stolen our wives and our children and our belongings? What do I do? The Lord answers him and says, go. Take out after them. For you shall surely overtake them and you shall surely rescue all. That is, David, you will prevail and you will receive back all that was taken from you. That, by the way, is pretty amazing. Because the normal thing to do when, that, when uh, these occurrences happened is that they would kill all the women who were not virgins. And they would take the children into slavery. So to be promised by God that he'll receive back all, that is, their wives and their children unharmed, is an amazing promise of God. And so verse 9, in faith, David went. And he went, and he and the 600 men, and that'll be important, the story develops. The 600 men who were with him, they came to the brook Besor, where those left behind remained. But David pursued he and 400 men, for 200 who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor remained behind. Now, the brook Besor is a is a deep, what's called a wade, that is, that it is a, a, a depression in the earth in which water runs with the rains. We can sure to understand that out here in Southern California. We have the L.A. River, which uh, as far as where I come from as a boy, that ain't much of a river at all. Okay, it wouldn't qualify. But out here, seasonally when the rain comes, right, it's a river. It gets filled up and runs, and then later it, it turns into something that's pretty dry and wouldn't even make much of a creek bed where I grew up. Similar circumstances there in the southern Negev. This this wadi was about three to four hundred feet wide, just so you can get an idea of it, with very steep sides. Some Bible commentators think that uh, it probably was running with water due to the seasonal spring rains. You remember, or maybe you don't, but anyways, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, it says that it was in the spring when the kings would go out to battle. It was the time of year when the kings would go out for battle was the springtime, after the rains. And so it's very possible that there's water running in this brook or this wade, and it would be deep and it would be fast moving. And the soldiers that are in pursuit are exhausted, the text tells us. They had already marched all the way up to Aphek to enter into the battle there. And then they had turned and they had marched all the way back. And they had wept until there was no tears left in their eyes to weep. Their village had been completely destroyed and with it all source of resupply. So there is not much available to them in terms of supplies. They're exhausted physically from the six-day march, three days up, three days back. And the emotional distress of the, of the circumstances in which they find themselves. And so 200 of them, verse 10, are just too exhausted to enter into this fast-moving uh, river and try to ford it in order to continue on the pursuit of the Amalekites. And so David leaves them behind. Verse 11. Now they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and gave him bread and he ate. And they provided him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of fig cake and two clusters of raisins, and he ate. And then his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. David said to him, To whom do you belong? And where are you from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, a servant of an Amalekite. And my master left me behind when I fell sick three days ago. We made a raid on the Negev of the Carathites and on that which belongs to Judah and on the Negev of Caleb. And we burned Ziklag with fire. This, way, this guy was part of the destruction of the village in which David lived. 
And David said to him, will you bring me down to this band? And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master. And I will bring you down to this band. Right. If you don't turn me over to them and you don't kill me, I'll show you where they are, basically. And when he had brought him down, behold, they were spread all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. So they were celebrating the spoils of victory. They were having one tremendous party. It says they're spread out everywhere. Okay, far as the eye can see, they're spread out and partying, which, by the way, leads us to believe that this is a very significant band of raiders. Okay, further on in the text, we find out uh, 400 of them escapes. And so that gives you an idea how large a band this was. Verse 17. David slaughtered them from the twilight. That is that he he engaged the battle at uh, at the twilight as the sun was setting until the evening of the next day. That's a long battle. I think part of it has to do with how spread out they were. I suspect what he did was come across, come upon one group after another and just slowly and stealthily work his way through the army. Not a man of them, verse 17, escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. Camels were the tanks of that day for the nomadic peoples of the southern Negev. So they would jump on the camels and they would make good and they got away. So, verse 18, David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and rescued his two wives. But nothing of theirs was missing, as God had promised, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken for themselves. David brought it all back. Now, let me just make a note here about spoil. We're used to armies being paid a salary, right? You, uh, you sign up for the uh, United States military and you have a package of salary and benefits and all the rest of it. It's a job in that sense. And all the modern armies of the world are paid. But that was not how it happened in the ancient days. The way you got paid in ancient times was that you would go into combat and when you conquered your enemy, you got to divide the spoil, that which you had taken from your enemy, among you, and that's how you were paid. And, of course, it was according to rank. That, by the way, encouraged people to fight pretty, pretty ruthlessly, pretty brutally to seize the spoil. Verse 20, so David captured all the sheep and the cattle, which the people drove ahead of the other livestock. And they said, this is David's spoil. That is, David as the king gets a bigger piece than everyone else. Verse 21, when David came to the 200 men who were too exhausted to follow David, who had also been left at the brook Besor, they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. Then David approached the people and he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless men, we'll come back to that in a moment, among those who went with David answered and said, because they did not go with us, literally me, we will not give them any of the spoil which we have recovered, except to every man, his wife and his children, that they may lead them away and depart. Then David said, you must not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us, who has kept us and delivered into our hand the band that came against us. And who will listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down to the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And so it has been from that day forward that he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. Verse 24, baggage. Let's just talk about that for a moment. It's a very broad term. It could be translated stuff. And indeed, that's how I have translated it for you in the sermon title, staying with the stuff. Okay, it includes things like armor, uh, weapons, cookware, furniture, uh, supplies of food or water, tools and any other clothing and any other kind of stuff that people have. And this is what the men would carry with them, of course, anywhere they went. When they would get to, to camp at night, they had to break out the pots and pans and cook dinner, and people had to sit on things, and all of that kind of stuff is called the baggage. All right? It's a very common term. So now, three simple but significant lessons to draw from this interesting narrative. Are you ready? Number one. 
God provides the victory. Simple as that. God provides the, vic- the victory. Look at verse 22. It says, Then all the wicked and worthless men among those who were with David answered and said, Because they didn't go with me or with us, we won't give them any of the spoil that we recovered. By the way, these are David's men. Earlier, we're told in uh, chapter 22 that these people who flocked to David were described by the three D's. That is, they were distressed, indebted, and discontented. When David was on the run from Saul, all the riffraff of Israel okay, accumulated around him. And so David's army of 600 here is the riffraff of Israel. And so they show themselves, verse 22, to be wicked and worthless men. They get back from the fight. And what they said is, we're not going to share any of the spoil with you who didn't go with us. We're going to give you back your wife and your children, and then you may depart. Lead them away, verse 22, that he may lead them away and they depart. That is, you're going to get out of here. We don't want you around anymore. But David understands, verse 23, where the victory really comes from, right? David said, you must not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. David knows where the victory comes from. David knows that God provides the victory. And because God provides the victory, therefore, all share in the spoils. So a very simple lesson. God provides the victory. We're involved in a spiritual war. Victories that come in that war come not by our strength, power, or might. They come not by our articulate presentation of the gospel. They come not by our wonderful works of ministry. They come by the Lord, by the grace of God. That's where they come from. God grants the spiritual victories. But it is easy to fall into the thinking of the wicked and worthless men into thinking that somehow you have a part in what has happened. Now, we wouldn't, for the most part, openly advocate that the spiritual victories are ours and came by us. We're too smart for that. But we might subtly do that. We might subtly in our heart begin to think that the success of a particular ministry is related to us, is dependent upon us. That somehow it's our ministry. We begin to use that kind of terminology. We personally invest in it and it becomes ours. And we can lose sight that it is God's victory. David, by the way, never lost sight of that. He had it from being a young man. He had it all the way through. When David confronted Goliath in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, before he went out, he said that... Uh, He said, the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's. And he will give you into our hand. David knew victory over Goliath, victory over the Amalekites, victory wherever against the enemies of Israel was always a gift of grace from God. God provides the victory. It's a very simple lesson. But it's hugely significant second lesson verse 21 people participate differently god provides the victory but people participate differently what do i mean by that i mean that the 200 had a part in the battle they had a part to play No matter the fact that they were exhausted and that was what initially led to them being left behind, they had a part to play. That is that they were to guard the stuff. They were to stay with the stuff. They were to guard the baggage. Chapter 25, verse 13. Don't turn there. You can jot it down if you'd like. You'll see that David... In another time, left 200 men behind to guard the baggage. This is not the first time. This is common. An army needs logistics. It needs its its base to be secured. It cannot venture out into the field without a supply line, without a supply train, without its home base being properly secured. It will be cut off and destroyed. 
It's just a common sense practice that armies have maintained from antiquity. Sort of fun of it, I went on the Internet this week and I looked up logistics involved in the Iraq War. Fascinating. Since April 1st, 2003, military logistics have delivered 42.2 million meals to Iraq. That's enough food to feed the entire population of 2.7 million people in Chicago for an entire week. The uh, cargo that has been delivered covers 15 million square feet in just 60 days. That much cargo delivered in 60 days. That's 333 times the size of a soldier's field, just so you can get a, a flavor of that. The transported cargo is the equivalent to 300,747 jetliners. They've moved 98,890 containers, which have lined up end to end, would cover 375 miles. It takes a lot to maintain an army in the field. Logistics is important. It's important. An army cannot function without it. There are a lot of ministries here at FBC that are not frontline ministries in the sense that they are not out and engaged in the hand-to-hand combat of a spiritual war. But they are nonetheless important and significant, indeed critical ministries for the total war effort. Not everybody can be a neighborhood ambassador. Not everybody can be a door-to-door evangelist. In fact, it would be terrible if that were true. And the reason it would be terrible is that there would be nobody to provide discipling for the newborns in Christ. There would be no one to provide the logistics that are necessary to keep an army like that in the field. Jim Wine was telling me this week about a person who wanted to participate in the Upland campaign as a door-to-door. I think it was a door-to-door person on this, Jim. I'm not sure. But this person wanted to participate but couldn't because of a child care conflict. But then another person from the congregation came forward and volunteered to do child care and freed up this other person to now engage. See, people participate differently in the ministry. That's the point of it. And it's important that everybody see their participation as essential to the total endeavor. The 200 here in 1 Samuel 30 that stayed with the stuff were important for those that carried on to fight the battle with the Amalekites. It was necessary that they stay. Critical that they stay. It's important for everyone here to see that your ministry, the ministry in which you are involved, is critical to the overall war effort. One spring day, a man was walking down a street when he encountered a large construction site. Because he was naturally curious and had a moment to spare, he decided to see what was being built. He came upon a stonemason laying stones and he asked him what he was doing. The stonemason replied, I'm laying stones. The man continued walking and came upon a second stonemason. He asked, what are you doing? The second stonemason replied, I'm building a wall. The man continued walking and came upon a third stonemason, and again he asked, What are you doing? And this third stonemason replied, I am building a cathedral. Three men, all working at the same site, performing the same task, yet each had three very different perspectives of what they were working towards. Is it that you're just laying stones? Or maybe you've lifted your eyes a little higher and you said, Well, I'm building a wall. Or do you see that you were involved in building a temple? A temple comprised of the people of God. Jesus Christ Himself, the chief cornerstone. Do you understand you're involved in temple building? 
God provides the victory. People participate differently. And third, all share equally. All share equally. David says that the spoil will be shared, right? Verse 24, for as his share is who goes down to the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the stuff. They shall share alike. And so it has been from this day forward that he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel to this day. That is going forward. That's how it operates. Everybody shares. All participate equally. Because all are involved differently in the task in which God provides the victory. So everybody gets a piece of the spoils. The distribution is not based on risk or bravery or even personal effort. It's based on the fact that we are members of a community. That's essentially what David said. Application. All successful ministry done through this church is 100% a grace gift of God. Isn't that true? Therefore, all here share equally in the spoils of that victory. What do I mean? Well, what I mean is like this. We can all rejoice together when a child makes a profession of faith through the Awana ministry. It's not just something that happened in Awana. It's something we all rejoice in. That victory. We can all revel in the glory of the cheerful cooks who gather to make and take a meal to a shut-in. It's not the cheerful cooks ministering to a shut-in. It is the body here ministering to itself, the shut-ins. And we all can revel in that. It's all our victory. We can all praise God for those who work diligently behind the scenes week in and week out. Vacuuming floors, setting up chairs, cleaning bathrooms, mowing lawns, preparing the facility so that when you come, it's always neat, it's always clean. You never have to think about it. It's always just there. It always just has happened. It doesn't just happen. People are here all week long doing things so that it happens. We can all thank God for the half a dozen or so people who spent hours here yesterday assembling church directories, photo directories that will enhance the fellowship here in the year to come. When we excuse, you're going to go out there and you're going to, you're going to receive this tremendous fellowship tool. It didn't just drop down on a sheet from the clouds. It's been worked on and worked on and worked on. And we can thank God we can share in the spoil of the victory. On your handout, I have a section that says application. My application, I just have one question for you. The application question is, where can I be involved? All right, this is what I'd like to do. This is risky, but this is what I'd like to do. I would like you privately to take a moment and I would like you to write down one area of ministry in which you are currently involved. Okay? Just for you. It's for you and God. One area of ministry in which you are currently involved. Paid staff, I want you to do this too. Okay? And everything you're paid for doesn't count. Okay? And then I want you to write down one area of ministry that by the grace of God you would like to be involved in in the next 12 months. So if you're involved in 15 things, praise God, maybe. Maybe you're too involved, but write down one. And then I want you to write down one other area of ministry that by the grace of God in the next 12 months you would like to be involved in. And don't show it to anybody. Tuck it away in your Bible. Just tuck it away in your Bible. 
You can come back to it later and see if God will not answer your prayer as you pray that you could be involved. Folks, there's all kinds of places around here to be involved. All kinds of places. Children's ministries, Awana, nursery, junior high, high school ministries, adult choir, children's choir. I'm just knocking off a few here. Bookstore needs a few clerks on Sunday morning. We've got adult Sunday school and Oikos groups starting up. There are ministry positions and opportunities available in both of those. We have the Upland Campaign. You heard about this morning, if you were there for Sunday school, all the various areas there as well. There is so much, so many places to be involved. There's a place for everybody. Even those that are too tired to go on with the main army. Cross the brook and enter into the conflict there. There's still a significant place of ministry. It's a total effort. It's a team effort. It's a recognition and understanding that we're involved in a great struggle. Great struggle. If you're new with us this morning, we're glad you're here. We're glad you're here. Glad in the providence of God that you have showed up to worship with us. Maybe some of the things that we've been talking about are somewhat alien to you. You're not sure what this all, what's this all this ministry involvement? Is this just some stuff I do? Is this just like a, you know, a Lions Club or one of those things where you know you get involved? No. No, we are. Sinners saved by grace. The Scripture says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That is, all of us are children of wrath by nature. We have violated God's holy character and law. In thought, word, and deed, we are an offense to Him. We are a stench in His nostrils. And that judgment is coming for all. But God has provided a means of escape. He has provided salvation. That is, that He has provided a covering for our sin. That that covering is Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, they would slaughter a lamb and sprinkle its blood on the doorposts of the home. That is, when the death angel came in the Exodus, He would pass over their home. He would not slay them. We don't kill animals and sprinkle their blood But the greater Lamb has come, Jesus Christ. God sent His own Son to step into space and time to take to Himself human flesh, to walk perfectly, spotlessly, in purity among humanity, and then to offer Himself on a cross that His blood would be poured out, not for His own sin and guilt, for He had none, but for the sin and the guilt of the children of Adam. That those who would look to His cross in faith, believing His death would be atonement, would be covering for their sin, that they then might have salvation, deliverance, escape, the covering. That's the Christian message. For there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name given under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is Christ alone. The Bible tells us that if you will turn from your wicked ways, your independent thinking, and you will embrace the sacrifice of Christ by faith on your behalf personally, you shall be saved. Not saved to go on with the old way of life, delivered from the power of sin that indwells you and delivered unto a new way of life. Ephesians 2 again says it is you have been saved unto good works. They've been prepared beforehand by God. You've been saved to serve. You've been saved to minister. You've been delivered from bondage to slavery and death and delivered into a slavery of Christ. But Christ is not a hard taskmaster. His yoke is easy, his load is light. It is a, a service of love. What an opportunity we have 
serve the one who loved us and died for us. The one whom we love and seek to emulate. After we sing our last song here, there will be some folks standing over here by this lighted cross. They're there to speak with you. If you sense a need within your soul to be right with God. Maybe there's a burden heavy on your heart in which you want someone to pray with you over. Maybe you just have questions with regard to church membership or baptism or the Bible or many other areas. If you come, they will work with you. They will help you. Behind that white door there, there's a beautiful room, prayer room where you could sit, pray in quiet. Don't walk out of here and hard of Heart, fingers in your ears. Yield yourself to Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, for redemption. Thank you that it is full and complete. And although we have not yet experienced it all in this life, we know by faith from the Word of God that it is a certainty in the life to come. Thank you that we have been given a purpose in life. That we live not for ourselves, but we now live for others. Called to emulate Jesus Christ, the Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve and give His life a ransom for many. Thank You, our Father, for ministry opportunities. And thank You, Lord, for the many, many folks in this congregation who actively give week in and week out. Father, encourage us in this. Enable us to sacrifice that the gospel could be expanded and extended to this community and that the war could be fought. We'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.